0: Section 13 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arianne Stein. Criminal Investigation. A Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers. Volume 1. By Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Examination of witnesses and accused continued. An important source of error arises from the way in which observations are joined together or split up. This frequently happens in observing moving objects. We know well the many blunders to which we are exposed when it is a matter of deciding which body is moving. Often, we do not know whether it is the railway carriage in which we are that is moving, or whether it is the carriage upon the parallel line of rails. Again, from the top of a bridge, if we look for a long time at the running water, at last it appears to us that the bridge is moving upstream. The cause of these phenomena is that we are incapable of appreciating anything else beyond the displacement of one object relatively to another. But it is a different matter when we wish to split up a movement into its component parts. How often do we come across facts like the following: The witness is incapable of saying whether the accused has thrown the glass of beer at his victim's head or whether he has struck him with it, and often enough one set of witnesses say one thing and one set the other. It by no means necessarily follows that one set of the witnesses has lied provided we take into consideration the relative slowness of perception, if we may use such an expression, that is, that a certain time is necessary for a visual impression to be fixed on the retina. In our example, the witnesses have seen the glass raised, and they have seen it fall on the head of the victim, but all the intermediate facts have escaped them. They followed each other too swiftly for each to make its own separate impression. This gap is filled up with the help of inductions, and the way in which each witness fills it up depends on his individuality or the humor in which he happens to be at the moment generally the witness sticks to the idea which he formed at the beginning of the incident seeing the accused raise the glass one witness says to himself he is going to strike him another says he is going to throw it at him and when the complainant has got the glass on his head each witness has filled up in his own way what has escaped his observation and imagines he has seen the action in the way in which he expected it would happen. This fact of the relative slowness of vision is of the very first importance, and the best method of enlightening ourselves on this subject is with the aid of instantaneous photographs. We all know, for example, that when we look at the instantaneous photograph of a horse at full gallop, we say we have never seen a horse look like that before. The cause is that the photograph has fixed the motion during a period too short for our sight to be able to retain it thus we seize with the eye without recognizing the fact a whole series of images succeeding each other rapidly and we unite these instantaneous images into a single image which has never really existed as such this image has never had a being we look for it in vain in the instantaneous photograph which cannot show our visual picture the latter being a combination of several instantaneous positions. In practice, the phenomenon is produced in the following manner. Suppose an action, very quickly executed and composed of certain positions a, b, c, d, e, f, g, h, i, k, l, m, positions which, on account of their very rapidity, cannot be perceived separately and distinctively by the human eye each observer then will group together a certain number of these positions to form a group image but the images thus formed will be very different because on the one hand the moment at which the different observers begin to group the images may by chance not be the same for all and on the other hand because a man who observes quickly requires only a small number of positions to form his group image while a man who observes slowly requires a larger number. In the first case, the group images formed by the positions indicated above will be grouped thus. For the first observer, For the second observer, who began to observe very soon after the first, the group images will be thus arranged. B, C, D, dash E, F, G, dash H, I, K. In the second case, that is, where the power of observation is more or less rapid, the man who observes quickly and requires two positions only to obtain a mental picture will have his group images thus. A, B, dash C, D, dash E, F, dash g h dash i k dash l m while the other who requires three positions will have them thus a b c dash d e f dash g h i dash k l m these group images thus diversified by their composition may have still greater differences let us suppose that one or more momentary positions for example a D G K Have escaped for some reason being noticed by one or other of the observers or that they have produced upon him only a vague impression The constituent elements of the group images will then naturally be quite different and different witnesses will report the same fact in a different manner although they all observed it equally well in practice it is, of course, impossible to find the difference between the diverse group images formed with the aid of the same instantaneous images. The scientific theory of their formation has been explained here only with the object of showing how positive facts may be observed in absolutely different fashions. Of equal importance, but less capable of analysis, are acoustical illusions or mistakes of hearing. They are undoubtedly more frequent amongst sick persons than optical illusions, but of these we shall not here treat. Let us only say in passing that the investigating officer should satisfy himself even more minutely than for optical illusions, whether there is any question of acoustical illusion due to morbid conditions of the body. If so, anything further must be left to the physician. We can here only consider mistakes which may be committed by persons in good health or who, although supposed to be in good health, are temporarily in a state different from the normal. We refer in particular to people who have been greatly terrified or have fancied themselves in danger of death. This abnormal condition must be taken into account, especially when questioning people who have been dangerously wounded in a riot, robbery with violence, attempted murder, etc. Fear, terror, pain, produce all sorts of mistakes on their own account. All the more will they do so when people find themselves in a condition practically equivalent to the morbid state. They suffer real hallucinations and hear words which have never been pronounced. Thus they hear voices of people pursuing them and threats which have never been uttered. And at the same time, they hear the voices of persons offering them assistance, although there was no one in the neighborhood. In this connection, there are some remarkable illusions— Sometimes certain words long forgotten appear suddenly to strike upon the ear. A case is reported of a sailor who, when on the point of drowning, heard distinctly before losing consciousness these words pronounced by his mother, "'Johnny, have you eaten your sister's grapes?' He had heard these words in infancy and had never thought of them since. In this case, nobody could for a moment imagine that those words had been really spoken to the drowning sailor. But suppose that a person, the victim of a crime and severely wounded, declares that he heard some remark or other. There is perhaps, at the moment, no sufficient reason for doubting the truth of the statement. Further, it is necessary to be extremely careful not to admit without verification statements of witnesses concerning the direction, the distance, or the intensity of the human voice. One has only to make certain experiments and examine the hearing faculty of a few people to discover the strangest things. The majority of people cannot tell you whether a voice comes from above or below, from the right or from the left, from before or from behind, from a distance or close at hand. And very few people know how defective their power of observation is in such matters. The reason often is found in the circumstances that one cannot readily bring oneself into touch with the locality, for example, the street of a town, hills in the country, etc. Further, everyone does not possess the gift of hearing sounds distinctly, and the majority of people understand what they hear not from the exact words themselves, but from the general tenor of the phrase. There would be nothing serious in that if everybody picked up the true meaning, but people give what they believe to be the true meaning, so that we are compelled to take into account their manner of comprehension and in consequence endeavor to reconcile an infinite diversity. If instead of one witness we have several who tell us what they have heard, we can at least compare their different statements and correct one by the other. But if we have only a single witness, we often commit the mistake of accepting his deposition as absolutely correct, simply because it is not contradicted by that of another witness. Thus, even in ordinary circumstances, we must be cautious and accept only with reserve what a witness pretends to have heard. All the more must it be so if there are special difficulties in the way. If, for example, the voice comes from a great distance, if it is shrill, muffled, or presents any other abnormal peculiarity. The same is true if the person whose voice has been heard is of different nationality from the listener, if he speaks another dialogue, or is better or less educated. Prudence is also necessary if the witness hears the voice unexpectedly, or if he does not mark the connection between the words he has heard and the action. Still more, if there is any ground for supposing that the witness has been mistaken as to this connection. We must remember that here memory is not yet in question. We are dealing only with inaccurate perceptions, where the witness is giving an incorrect account of what he has seen or heard immediately afterwards. Note also that stupid or uneducated people not only find it difficult to repeat word by word what they have heard, especially when the sentences are of some length, but also they constantly distort the sentences when they are compelled to repeat word for word. We must therefore be content with getting them to tell us the general sense of what they have heard, but we must, of course, from the first instant, take care that the witness really knows all about the affair. Otherwise, in reproducing the sense of the words he has heard, he will certainly twist the meaning according to the idea he has taken. Under certain circumstances, something that may be due to phonismus, an acoustical sensation caused by light, and photismus, an optical sensation caused by sound. These sensations are not experienced by everyone, but appear to be not infrequent. For example, the strange noise heard by many people at the rising of the aurora borealis such results are probably due to strong association of ideas there is not much to be said about mistakes of the other senses their place being of secondary importance everyone knows that the sense of touch gives rise to many mistakes such mistakes are of great importance for the criminal lawyer when it is a question of wounds we know for instance that wounds made by a dagger or a bullet give only the impression of a shock and that insignificant contusions cause extreme pain, while we hardly feel a mortal wound. People who have in the course of a riot received a number of slight wounds and one severe one are generally incapable of telling when they received the severe wound. Further, such wounded persons cannot, as a rule, state exactly how they received the blows. In short, the statements of wounded people, where the sense of touch is involved, must be received with great caution. Another fact frequently overlooked must be taken into consideration. It is that the different parts of our body fulfill their functions normally only when they are in ordinary positions. If, for example, we take up a P between the thumb and the first finger, we feel only one P, although the tactile impression has been conveyed by two fingers. But if we cross the third finger over the fourth and place the P between the extremity of these two, we feel it doubled, as if there were two peas, because the fingers are not in their natural positions and thus transmit to the brain a double tactile impression. In other words, the double sensation is the true sensation, but when the fingers are in their ordinary position, experience comes into play and we feel only one pea. As in another example, if one joins the hands crossways and turns them inside and raises them up so that the fingers of the right hand are still on the right, and those of the left still on the left, the faculty of localizing the finger is absolutely lost. And if any one tells you, without touching it, to raise one of the fingers, say the third of the right hand, you will be certain to raise the corresponding finger of the other hand. We also know that the sense of touch is one of the least developed. If not exercised, as it is in the case of a blind man, it requires the help of other senses and especially that of sight. Thus, perceptions of touch alone are always less certain than others because they depend upon a small number of very rough signs. The same phenomena may be perceived in a social game much played by children. In this game, they pass from hand to hand underneath the table perfectly harmless objects as a piece of dough, a potato, a kid glove wetted and full of sand, etc., if one take into his hand, without seeing it, one of these objects, he thinks he is touching some hideous monster and throws it away. By the sense of touch, he has had only the sensation of cold, wet movement that is the common characteristic of the idea of a reptile. The imagination completes the sensation, and the idea of a reptile is transmitted to the brain. To these defective sensations, due to touch alone, must be added a species of transmissibility of tactile impressions. If, for example, ants are running about near where one is seated, one immediately feels the sensation of ants running about under one's clothes. And when one sees or hears the description of a wound, one frequently feels pain in the corresponding part of one's own body. It may be taken for granted that, with witnesses of an impressionable nature, this tendency may be the cause of serious mistakes. This want of independence, so to speak, of the sensation of touch, is intensified by the fact that all sensations are relative, and most markedly in this case. We feel a cellar to be hot in winter and cold in summer, because we perceive only the difference between its temperature and that of the outside atmosphere. And if, after having plunged one hand in cold water and the other in hot water, we place both in tepid water, the former will have the sensation of heat and the latter of cold. We have frequently in magisterial reports to deal with tactile sensations. We must be always careful to take into account their lack of certitude. Certain strange phenomena may here be alluded to, the raison d'etre of which is to be found in the irregular structure of the human body, for example, walking in a circle instead of straight. This phenomenon is especially noticeable when walking in a fog in an unfamiliar locality or in the forest at night time and particularly if the person be to some extent out of his senses as sick, frightened, intoxicated, stunned, or weak from loss of blood. It appears very strange that sometimes a murderer or robber, instead of running straight away, walks in a circle round the place of the deed, a fact which may be proved by footprints or witnesses. Nobody nowadays would assert that a person who has been running round in a circle in this way is for that reason alone incapable of telling the truth. As to taste and smell, they are frequently perverted by illness. And even a man in good health finds it difficult to say if his senses of taste and smell are normal, for it is impossible to submit them to any standard of comparison. The parts played by these two senses in our life is less important than those of sight and hearing. We can readily ask a person if he sees well or hears well and even test his ability, but it would be useless to ask him if he can taste or smell properly and with normal accuracy, for we have no means of testing the correctness of his reply. Besides, extraordinary changes take place in these senses. If, for example, in judging a food by its look alone, we conclude that we have before us a dish of sweets, when in reality is a plate of salted viands, we shall on tasting have the sensation of neither, but only a horrible taste in the mouth. The savor of the sweets is mixed with that of the salted provision, just as if we had really mixed up the two meats on the plate. It must be particularly noted that in the case of smell, the sensations of pleasant and unpleasant are most diverse. One person delights in the smell of rotten apples, another in that of a wet bath sponge. What one calls the horrible smell of carrion. Another hails as a delicious gamey odor. Some women consider asafoetida to be the best perfume. Most people would say the smell was stinking. The odor of garlic, it is universally known, is very diversely appreciated, and many people cannot endure such common perfumes as musk and patchouli. Thus, when it is a question of determining the correctness of a smell perception, great care is necessary and all the more because the sensibility of the organ varies so much with individuals. Some people can smell a cat in a room, others can recognize persons by the mere odor of the clothes they are wearing, while others are unaffected by the strongest stenches. At the same time, the sense of smell is of an extraordinary persistence. An odor, scented but once, is recognized 10 years afterwards. It raises up before our eyes with the greatest fidelity all the objects perceived at the same time. This fact may occasionally be of importance in testing the recollection of witnesses. End of section thirteen